Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Garrick Small on the topic Penance, Catholicism and the New Economy. This May 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Dr. Garrick Small is an economist and associate professor at Central Queensland University. But I think there's a very close relationship between our, our material life and, you know, property, and I've been interested in, in the way that that works uh, for things like land prices and so on for a while, and I've spoken here a couple of times on that. But tonight what I want to do is, is focus particularly, not so much on land, I can't resist that a bit, but I, I want us to think about the way that our economy, uh, the way that our business world works, tends to push our behaviour in a particular way, which actually makes it relatively difficult to serve God. Okay. And I hope I can actually pull that off, because it's really a combination of a very godless science with you know, our prayer life and our spirituality. Okay. So I'm probably going to go more from the, uh, from the, from the uh, economic side. So if you like, it's going to be a little bit of, I won't say an experiment, but we're going to be actually sort of connecting two very, very different things. But I hope at the end of the evening that I can sort of share with you something that I see as very fundamental in the way that our culture is going because of the way that we do business. Okay. Some of you will recall that last time I was here, or one of the last times I was here, I was talking about the way that relative to about a generation ago, some things in our world um, have become more expensive and some things haven't uh, and uh, are sort of focusing specifically on, on property. And uh, I'd like to sort of look at that. If we look at the price of houses today, and to a certain extent there's a, you know, almost once, at least once a week you'll find sort of something in the, um, in the media still about the way that housing is, is um, not as affordable as it used to be and... Um, uh, you know, the developers sort of wanting, um, you know, more benefits so that they can actually be encouraged into the market. What can we say about that? Um, having a house has always been difficult. But when it was difficult for um, people a generation ago, let's say, you know, with young families in 1970, and I'll kind of use that as my, my base point, um, it was difficult because there was dad working mum at home with the kids, um, and a relatively simple life, but things were tough. Yeah. And sort of some of you might have well, certainly had uh, some sort of experience of that, either as, as children or as adults. We come to today and everyone says, oh, we've got to work harder and, and that sort of thing. Um, and are we better off? Now, the supporters of the better off kind of camp would say yes, you know, in 1970, we didn't have air conditioners, we didn't have colour televisions, we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have all of these things that make life comfortable. Yet, on the other hand, what do we have? We've got now a life where uh, most people work rather long hours. When I left the university and went back into industry, I kind of worked the 7 7 shift fairly regularly. And that's kind of fairly exciting for a bit of a change. Um, but I sort of feel for people, I mean, I can kind of do that because my family's grown up and wife's at home and all the rest of it. How about for young people? My, my graduates, when they go out, they're going into that kind of a world. 
hey, how do we have enough spare time when they're sort of eyes are still kind of open? We're not going to meet somebody to, you know, sort of take an interest in socially, let alone sort of have a family life. Uh, and that's kind of where our young people are kind of going into. So we've got this sort of slip towards um, longer working hours, uh, and certainly sort of the requirement of a double income to go and pay for, um, you know, all of the, the, the needs that we have. And so our mobile phones and our, um, uh, our comforts come at the expense of this double income. I want us to sort of think about that, um, uh, you know, what we've actually sort of traded. When we look closely at the um, uh, same with, with real estate, a curious thing sort of happened over that time in terms of the relationship between the price of your house and the price of the land that it sits on. More or less, um, in 1970, the house was worth about two-thirds of the price that you paid for your home. Okay, the land was about one-third. Now, the ratio is actually sort of swapped over. And so typically, the house is no more than about a third the price of your property. Okay? Sometimes it might get up to half the price. In some places, and I was looking at some property in some various parts of Sydney, where you have houses that are worth something like about 10% of the value of the entire property. And it's kind of curious because when you actually sort of do that swap, the money that you pay out to buy in the house, where does it go to? If it's going to a builder, and maybe some of your builders, you think, well, at least that's good because it's actually sort of, you know, putting beans on the table for somebody, for the plumbers and the, and the, and the, and the bricklayers and all that sort of stuff. But if it's simply going into the land, it actually doesn't help anybody apart from the person who just happens to have sold the land before. It's not really going to generate the same kind of sense of productivity. It's not going to help the, the, the wheels of, of, uh, of the economy to go around. The other thing about the land is that it doesn't actually have any particular cost, any, any sort of basis to it. It's just kind of something which becomes valuable. Another way of looking at this is that between 1970 and today, we've gone from one income, having a single, simple sort of a life, and by and large for what you pay for your home, at least, um, is, uh, was, was largely sort of funding um, to workers and, and other people in the community. But the other side of it is that in a sense we've made those prices what they are. Okay. The price of the house is sort of fixed by price of wages. Okay? So if the plumber becomes more expensive and the bricklayer becomes more expensive or you decide to put the ductile air conditioning in or whatever it is, okay, that's making the house more expensive. That's kind of fine. We can sort of you know, it's kind of related to the overall economy. When we're simply bidding and outbidding each other to bring the price of the land up, okay, what we're doing is just outdoing each other in terms of how much money eventually we're going to borrow from the bank and how little money we're going to have to feed our kids out of our pay packet for the next 25, 30 years. Okay? And it's one of those curiosities. I want to come back to that. I describe that as do-it-yourself poverty. Because what we've done as a community, okay, is borrow a whole lot of money, put the price of land up, we've still got the same house, 
well, relatively speaking, now it's got the air conditioning and the colour television in it, but, you know, it's still where our kids are going to grow up. But we're saddled with this huge debt, which is going to make life relatively difficult for us to do the normal kind of family things that otherwise we'd like to do. And living as a family today is far more difficult than it was a generation ago. The do-it-yourself poverty. It's a free market, and we have freely chosen to do that. And I want to explore a little bit further who the we is, okay, and what the implications are. This is an extraordinarily hard concept to get across to people. Now, I, I just live and breathe this stuff, over, you know, that's kind of my world. But most people, if you sort of say, well, the price of land, you know, is just this artificial thing which actually makes life difficult for people, oh, you know, it's kind of pretty loopy. And so I just want to get us to kind of come close to, a little bit close to that. Um, one, or well, a few kind of counter examples, if you like. Oh, I was interested a few years ago, this is well, now quite a few years ago, I had a very good friend who, um, who came to Australia from a war torn country. Um, and he was talking about, you know, how uncomfortable it was just going down the street for, you know, a pint of milk or whatever, because people were shooting at you. And I said, oh, you know, how do you get along with this? Well, people just get along with it, sort of put up with it and do the best they can because a lot of people couldn't escape. I said, well, do you buy and sell land? Yeah, it's my interest. So I yeah, do that. What do the banks think of? Oh, no banks. And the thing that was kind of curious about that was that I thought, well, okay, what are the land values going to be like? You know, this is kind of the property economy. It's kind of like, you know. And sure enough, all the land values would have fallen down to just about sort of, you know, sort of two cents more than Zilcho. But people still owned land, they owned their houses, they built their houses, they fixed them up when they got bombed and all that sort of stuff, right? And they were able to sort of, you know, buy and sell them and all that sort of stuff. So the economy was actually going, and people had that kind of, you know, relative stability. But the bank was taken out of the equation, and the prices were a lot less. Uh, and sure enough, they had a lot of other things to, to worry about. But the point about it was that the prices had come down, the banks had kind of out of the picture. And yeah, I don't recommend war, but um, it was sort of curious because it sort of takes something like that to actually put into common sense into some of things. Okay. So there's some sort of peculiar things. I think there are a number of um, paradoxes or ironies or, you know, sort of peculiarities in the way that we do things. This idea that if you pick up the Sydney Morning Herald tomorrow and it says land prices have gone up, everyone says, oh, this is fantastic. Yeah, you get a nice good feeling, you know. But what does that mean? It means rent's going to go up. It means that when you go along to the banker, you know, the, 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 the bank is going to sort of be taking more out of you for interest. And if it continues to go up, the RBA is going to put up interest rates. So, you know, all of us are going to sort of hang or we'll get sort of, you know, bled out. Right? So, in fact, when we feel good about the news that we get, in fact, what's happening is that our life is actually becoming more miserable. You know, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of discussion about the way that rents have gone up and continue to go up. Last couple of years, especially, that's been the case. That's sort of on the back of what's happened to prices over the last few years. Now, if you're a tenant, that's very uncomfortable, but you don't really have very much power over it. Life is becoming uncomfortable because of this supposed good news. On the other hand, if the Sydney Morning Herald came out and said, hey, you know, sort of the prices have gone down, this is really dreadful, oh, you know, what are we going to do? Right? In a curious way, 
And maybe our personal self-interest is going to be damaged because I might own a house or an investment property and all that sort of stuff. And lots of people, probably too many people, got into the investment property kind of stuff. I don't offend anyone, because you might have done it yourself. In the last, say, 10 years, if the price goes down, what happens? Okay, sure enough, that's, that's really glum if I own my own house, right? Or if I own my investment property. But what does it do for the tenants? Life a little bit easier for the, those people who are poor enough not to be able to afford to buy the house themselves. Now, relatively speaking, there are a lot more people that are less well off and probably in need than there are the people with investment properties. And so the bad news becomes the good news. So there's kind of some peculiarities there. Economics, the science, the official science of, of economics, is built on a paradox. And it's an ethical paradox. It's a paradox of self-interest being the basis of the common good. Now, in serious philosophy, uh, we talk of the common good being a, a major ethical goal. It's very, very important. Normally, you think of good actions as being how you realise the common goal, however. But the science of economics, the way that it's kind of taught, and whether you're learning it at school or at university, um, I try very hard to avoid teaching it, but anyway, uh, it's all based on an irony. The irony is this, that if everybody is selfish and greedy, everyone looks out for themselves, build up their own business, make themselves wealthy, we'll end up with a whole community of wealthy, happy, successful people, and everyone will be happy. The common good will be realised by everyone being selfish and greedy. Yeah? And that goes back to a fellow by the name of Adam Smith a couple of hundred years ago. Yeah. Now, there's a kind of logic to it. Yeah? If we've got 19 million people in Australia and they're all sort of being self-interested and they're all running their business and they've all made a whole lot of money and they're all sort of fabulously wealthy, sure enough, Australia will be kind of better off. I don't know who they'll be sort of actually making all their fabulous amounts of money from because in a sense to you know become fabulously wealthy you've really got to have sort of some goose there working for you uh, who's probably not going to be fabulously wealthy. Yeah. But we don't think about that too much. But the idea is that if the community is full of self-interested, successful people, then you end up with a good community, and that's kind of the official basis of it. It doesn't take too much kind of thinking to actually sort of start to sort of see that there must be sort of something wrong with that. And sure enough there is, because usually out of the few stars that sort of end up finding themselves into the, you know, the newspapers and the history books and all that sort of carry on, there are literally hundreds, sometimes thousands of people that are actually you know, on the losing end of the stick. Yeah? Uh, but they don't tend to sort of feature in the history books, and certainly the uh, historians of, 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 uh, of economics um, tend to sort of leave them out of the equation sometimes when we sort of come back to some of the ways of dealing with it a bit later on. So, let's keep a look at this self-interest thing, this, this vice. Now, now self-interest, if I talk about greed, normally you know, you'd sort of throw me out for sort of preaching greed in here because, you know, that's not very Christian and, and not very good. It's generally considered to be a vice. But, unfortunately, um, it seems to sort of sell that sort of somehow that will kind of work. Now, that's almost become, I think, the kind of the ethical foundation of our society. Yeah? The reason I say that is that because more and more of our 
public institutions, there are different you know, places and organisations and stuff, are reorganising themselves to look like corporations and to uh, present themselves to the community as successful or unsuccessful using the kind of language and criteria of the corporation. And you would have seen that yourself. And I was kind of a lad. Uh, there used to be things called town clerks that used to run uh, local councils. And local councils, by and large, were sort of you know, pretty responsible kind of places. Now they have general managers. Uh, a little project that I'm doing for a local government area um, on the western end of Sydney is um, to examine ways of them building a botanical garden that will be self-funding. Right? Because they want everybody to turn a profit. And when I first looked at the job, how do you do this? But, you know, they'll kind of pay my boss to get me to do this sort of study, so I looked at it. And um, there are actually ways of doing it ethically, but not actually by charging uh, of a sort of entry at the gate and all the rest of it. I actually found that there's good reasons to say that you can't get a botanical gardens to fund itself even if you do charge people at the gate. But there's this kind of mentality, yes, we've got to actually do this, we've got to get the user to pay, we've got to be efficient, we've got to be successful, you know. And so local government's doing it. Um, you know, the, the, all levels of government are going doing it. Now, originally, you see, these were things that were meant to turn some sort of return back to the community. But they're really reinventing themselves in this corporate model and sort of saying, we're good if we're turning a profit. Unfortunately, you find this to a certain extent in the church too. Probably... In, in, some, in some quarters, where you have this sort of notion of the priest as a professional, you know. Probably you haven't bumped into too many priests like that, but when you sort of see it, it's a little bit unfortunate because what it's really sort of saying is that I'm not a, a shepherd, souls, I'm a father. I'm a manager, I'm a professional, you know, sort of. I was an appetite once, and this kind of priest came in to say mass, and he had his little briefcase, and he was wearing a little suit, you know. And I thought, whoa. That really smacks of middle management, you know? And I was just unfortunate because I just thought, well, you know, this fellow sort of really deserves our prayers because he's really thinking that better than the hierarchy of the church and the order that really is, 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 is um, formed in the image of the Trinity, he's, uh, he's putting the business in there. So we've got this all over the place. The idea that, um, you know, our culture is successful if it's efficient and so on, and the way we build our roads and, you know, I sort of, we, we've got lots and lots of places for it. And it's going right through our culture. Now, there are many other places where this notion of self-interest is less evident, and I think a little bit sort of sneakier. Okay, it's one thing to see the town clerk becoming a general manager and, and, and that sort of stuff. Or, you know, selling off the electricity or something so we can make a profit and all that sort of carry on. I think that's pretty hideous, but it's sort of what's happening. But there are really, really subtle places. If our community is based on the anthropology of economics, which is this notion of self-interested being a virtue, then it means we get people to think in self-interested ways, even when they're not kind of running businesses. I was sort of interested uh, when this kind of came into advertising. It's been around now for a few years, so it's getting a little bit sort of dull. But for a while, I think you still find it from time to time. Advertising in terms of you deserve it. Now, I think a lot of this retirement stuff still, still tends to be kind of working in that, you know. Um, spend your kids' inheritance before you, you know, 
all that sort of stuff. Well, that's really extraordinarily sort of, uh, I, I find it really inhuman, in you know, maybe because I'm waiting for my parents to die or whatever. But this idea that you deserve it, whether it's putting yourself in a nice, comfortable kind of retirement situation or buying the new car that you don't really need or sort of getting the, uh, the flash this, that or the other. The you deserve it kind of advertising and looking out for it because it's still alive as much as it's not quite as, as bad as it was a couple of years ago. Uh, I think it's really sort of saying is, what are they really sort of keying into there? They're trying to get us to think like the kind of model of humanity which the economist understands. And so we're really kind of going into that sort of a model. Okay. Uh, you deserve it. Uh, and related to that, you will like it, this will make you happy, and all that sort of stuff. Okay. And so it's selling a notion of the human person, which is very much in terms of very shallow sense of what our object is. Okay. Um, happiness and, um, uh, and, and that sort of thing um, on, on a, a very immediate sort of shallow level. Ultimately, a little, little bit closer, a lot of advertising is really trading on vice. Because what they're really saying is, if you like it, have some more. You know, indulge. It's sort of looking at um, self-indulgent to excess, uh, you know, and, and sort of pretty much at the um, opposition of the other. Self-interest also comes in um, the invention of uh, a number of things that, that previously didn't really exist. And it's, it's one of my kind of interests at present, and I kind of hope to be able to sort of pull off publishing this study um, before I get too far away from the academic world. And that's on the novelty of the generation gap. I say novelty because it appears that the, novel gap, the, the generation gap didn't exist the other side of about 1965. And I've got some of my students to go out and survey people that were a bit older and ask them a few relatively simple but probing questions. And we found that, by and large, the notion of generation gap, which now is pretty much kind of firmly in our culture, to the extent that you talk to psychologists and all the sort of you know, sociologists and stuff, so, you know, sort of, you know, teenagers do this, that, and the other. And sure enough, teenagers always have to sort of test the limits and they always have to, you know, um, make discoveries from themselves and sort of go from being a child to, a, to an adult. And that means a, uh, a certain sort of lonely journey in a way. And that goes right back to, you know, I love reading my kids the Grimm's fairy tales. Because you, you have that sort of notion of that transition in so many of those fairy tales. But the idea of that testing and that taking on of adult values through the exploration, you know, the young man sort of going out and sort of... Um, killing the, uh, the, the, the dragon so he can marry the princess, now has been sort of reformed into simply rejecting the established order and sort of this whole mode of rebellion. And so a healthy thing has been turned into a relatively unhealthy thing through, I think, a rather large machine which kind of works towards really a focus on self-interest. And so young people are being brought up to be self-interested in a way which I think is sort of curious um, historical antecedents. You see these kind of things having happened back at different times in history. I don't want to go too far down there. But the generation gap appears to be something which is relatively recent, certainly isn't eternal, um, but it sort of it helps to generate 
this sense of greater self-interest. It means that the person who is not going to be, you know, the rebellious teenager, really has to sort of step away from their surrounding youth culture, largely. And I think, well, Youth Day is probably going to be an incentive for, for, for young people to do that. But compared to the massive of influence uh, which is in our culture today, uh, most of the messages are in terms of give away sort of the, uh, the old fuddy daddies and that sort of thing. And so this sort of self, the generation gap, the um, you deserve it, um, you know, take it now, it's really creating something like what I would call a culture of narcissism. Um, you know, really being interested purely in the self and not terribly motivated by others. Now, all of that echoes back to this fundamental aspect of economics based on self-interest. And it's kind of rattling out in all sorts of different areas of our culture. And it means to turn your back on that, turns you back on this dominant value, which is sort of now becoming you know, quite pervasive through our economy, uh, through our community. I've done it now myself. Uh, you know, these, these, these values of self-interest. And often it means that if you're going to turn away from those values, it means you have to live values which are not self-interested, which means self-restraint. This is where this notion of penance comes in. And I'll kind of get on to that a little bit further as we go down. The curious thing about this you deserve it mentality and self-interested mentality is that if you train a community to be self-interested and follow the Adam Smith kind of idea of you know, having everyone successful, what you end up with is a curious kind of paradox because rather than getting everyone to be tough bullies, and they might be bullies, but they tend not to be tough. Why? Because they, well, I guess going down to the gym now is becoming a little bit popular. In a sense, there's a weakness that comes from living a life of self-indulgence. Or the you deserve it kind of, or I deserve it kind of mentality. There's this very deep kind of weakness. People kind of grow up with no reason to sort of get outside of self-interest. Um, you know, we, we, we look at the way that sort of young people are now becoming a bit obese. And I wonder about that. You know, sort of people are scratching their heads and saying, you know, what's going on? Well, it sort of fits into this overall model. That if you are looking at, well, if, if you think as you kind of grow up and look at the cartoons or whatever it is, and all you have to do is sort of enjoy yourself, then overeating is a very easy way of enjoying yourself, in a way. There's a kind of like a weakness there. A self-interested community is also an easily manipulated community, because to a certain extent you've kind of chosen a lot of easy options. And to actually sort of turn against that major flow um, of, um, of, of messages, whether it's coming from advertising or what uh, is relatively difficult. You're simply not equipped to make any hard decisions. I find in politics it's kind of curious, um, you know, and some of the critics of, of the most recent budget, I don't want to pick on the budget because well, I don't want to do that, but if you look at other budgets um, back through time, the most dangerous budgets are the ones where the politicians tell you this is a tough budget. You know, we really have to sort of drag the, or pull the belt in on this one. And, what, and when they don't really do it, you know, they might be a little bit awkward, but it's not really very awkward, right? 
And the politicians say, isn't that wonderful? We've been able to cope with this. Everyone's kind of feeling good. In a sense, it means that the, um, the community has ended up being kind of like drawn into the manipulation. Okay. I don't know what's going to happen with this one. It's certainly not as bad as, as, as some of them But the notion of, or the, the fact that a community which has been brought up in self-interest is easily manipulated, is weak, is not able to really defend its own values, is a very, very important quality. Okay? And it comes from this preoccupation with self-interest. A community which becomes preoccupied with self-interest won't be necessarily very well educated. Why would I say that? Is education an easy thing to get? It takes hard work. It means you've got to work at something that you don't see an immediate value to. And in my area, I guess one of the things that I find most challenging in tertiary education at present is that um, my performance as an educator is measured on how much my students enjoy the experience of being in my classes. Well, if I wear funny hats every day and sort of come in and, you know, do <coughs> some stuff, and sometimes I do that for fun, okay, I might get a, a good response. If I get them to go home and sort of read lots of books and think and maybe write essays that get sort of, you know, great in terms of the logical structure, am I going to go very far as an educator? At least in terms of my accreditation, my, my evaluation? Not likely. Um, and I, <laughs> uh, there are times I, I taught ethics, uh, uh, this is last year, and uh, I had um, half a class who were coming up, oh, this is fantastic, this is great. And I had the other class that was saying, oh, this is really, really bad. And in the end of my, 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 my sort of um, uh, student feedback survey, I had like this double peak. You see, I had the students that hated me and these students that liked me. And as a result, I've sort of was canned. I'm not allowed to teach that anymore. Right? Because I taught ethics in an ethics class for business people. Ooh, scary stuff. Um, so you end up not just in that area. Maybe I'm a lousy teacher too, so you know, got to watch out. But the education overall, and this is one of the things which I, I feel fairly, I mean, I'm, I'm in the business of education and all the rest of it, but as some of you know, you know, we used to uh, sort of home, home school our kids and, and so on. And I really feel even the best of schools, um, you know, aren't, are no longer able to, to educate following even just the, the, the pedagogical methodologies that work anymore. Because in order to sort of fit in with our culture, we've got to give away an awful lot. Okay. So our education is going down. I, I occasionally talk on environmental topics. And one of the things I find kind of curious, I've got a science background, you know, myself as much as I kind of moved into other areas of social sciences now. And uh, when, I, when I, I take my undergraduate students through greenhouse and stuff like that, I'm amazed at how poor their scientific understanding is. You know, they're, they're two years out of high school, they're sort of you know, the, the top sort of 15 or 20 percent of, of, of the state, and they just don't have a clue as far as physics and all that sort of stuff goes. And I just find that really, really disappointing. Uh, but they get through the HSC and the, all the rest of it, and I guess like, I can ask my, my kids at present, and I've, I've got a few kids now that have gone through uh, the HSC. You know, do you do um, poetry? Oh, a little bit, you know, you know, 
Yeah. Literature, I don't think, is being taught anymore. Uh, we, we sort of teach a whole lot of things in English, and they've got fancy names, and the kids actually have to work in a kind of sort of sense, but they're not really understanding literature. And I think that really sort of counts kids out of a lot of understanding what it is to be human. Okay, I'm getting a little bit off topic there. But the loss, of, the loss of education, I think, is a fair symptom of a community which is kind of falling down into this economic kind of culture. Okay, and I'm sort of what I want to do is kind of put the scenes there and then sort of come back to what it is to to really be human, which I think is what it is to uh, follow the great example of humanity, which is that blessed Lord. Okay. third characteristic of a community that's trying to be self-interested is that it will be poor. It will not be rich. We've seen this historically. Um, basically, most of the last mm, four or five hundred years, um, up until sort of socialism sort of came on the, uh, on, on the horizon as a bit of a, a scare. Um, if you look around the uh, 1600s, 1700s, uh, early 1800s, um, the poverty that came from a community that tried to live these values was just extraordinary. I think we're probably going back into that sort of a, um, uh, a world. Okay. What can we say? In general, um, there's a, a little idea I'd just like to throw in here, which is, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's an idea which sort of makes a lot of sense to me. Um, is that when you lower a standard, you end up with a short-term gain and a long-term cost. Okay? When you move to a self-interested kind of a world, you end up with a short-term gain, which is you know, the new car and all the rest of it. You may sort of um, have um, given away something else to do that. But the long-term cost is that while we've kind of benefited from maybe not having to bother going and doing our education, the long-term cost is that we never actually are educated. Okay. And there are a number of examples of this kind of thing. In our economy, we find that... Um, I was kind of interested when uh, granny flats were first allowed. This goes back now quite a few years. In the old days, if you had a cottage, like a house with a backyard on it, you could only ever have one family in that house. right? And people sort of think, oh, this is really dreadful. You know, I want to look after you know, my agent mother or mother-in-law or father or father-in-law or what have you. Isn't it dreadful the government won't let me just have a nice little flat where they can sort of live and all that sort of stuff. So one of the granny flats. When we were allowed to do that, suddenly land values went up. Why? Because once you let people have granny flats, it means that you really have two households on one block of land and it's a little way to go from the granny flat to the duplex to all the rest of it. And so actually it was great for the property industry. Okay? House prices went up. But anyone wanting just one house and one block of land all of a sudden couldn't afford it. Right? Because you're really competing with people who are able to put two households on one block of land. Yeah? So the standard was lower in terms of how many households per block of land. Short term gain, lots of people benefited. But in the long term, for future generations, I think most people who want a cottage with a backyard and the rest of it. We're sort of seeing that with, you know, what are now referred to as the McMansions and so on. Where the land is so valuable it's kind of squeezed down just about nothing with this whopping grabbing house on it. Yeah. I was watching four quarters and I don't know if that's typical, but a lot of those McMansions in that area have gone down. In value? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, prices all over the place have gone down too. Mm. Uh, 
The McMansions were another thing, you know, we'll talk about that, there's nothing like it. Um, the point about though is that when you let yourself go down, let's say from the quarter acre block down to, you know, the three or four hundred square metres they're doing now, everyone sort of feels like things are going well, but in the long term people end up um, sort of missing out. Let's look at some of the other places where standards are lowering, short term gain, long term cost. The small houses, the granny flats are a good example of that. Thanks, Alan. Uh, let's look at some others. Longer working hours. Oddly enough, if you let your guard down and say, yes, I'll sort of work overtime and maybe you're sort of doing that um, out of a real selfless interest in sort of caring for your family, sometimes people have to do that. But if everyone starts working longer hours, what does it do? There's more money in the people's pockets. They go out and spend it all. And the merchants and the property developers and the rest of it, what do they do with the prices? Then you're stuck with, instead of working 40 hours, working 48 hours, okay, uh, and you're still only got the same amount of stuff to bring home at the end of the day. Yeah? And to a certain extent, we've sort of seen that over the last generation, working hours have increased quite considerably. I find that really weird. I mean, I'm still old enough, I guess, um, to have been, uh, you know, kind of growing up at the time when, when working hours were going from 40 down to 35. I wish I could work a 40 hour week. Bargains. To a certain extent, most of us, and apparently a large percentage of the ordinary stuff that we buy, whether it's electric fans or clothes or all sorts of stuff, are all bargains. Yeah? And people get the junk mail out and lots of carry on. Have you ever thought how expensive bargains actually make it for our life? Again, this is kind of like a paradox. But anyway, with bargains, because first of all, it means that the shops probably could sell the thing down at the bargain price and make a, 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 some sort of reasonable income. Yeah. And often that's the case. Yeah. Bargains are kind of complicated because sometimes they're actually purposely done to actually cut out the competition. Yeah. And so that's employment which is gone. And if you take out the employment, that's kind of fine, I guess, in the short term. But when, you know, sort of your neighbour doesn't have a job, eventually that sort of feeds back into how it affects your own job in a roundabout kind of a way. The bargains have a a number of of problems with them. Um, To the extent that, uh, I won't go too far into bargains, but it sort of tends to fill our our world... um, you know, with a mentality that uh, unfortunately kind of gets you looking for the wrong kinds of shops, I think. G.K. Chesterton was very big on, on not liking big shops and, and bargains, and I tend to kind of go along with that. We sort of find that, uh, and I mentioned uh, electric fans, so this is one of my little bugbears. Uh, I can still still remember when our family bought their first fan, you know, and that was, that was the air conditioner in the house, this little fan. Right. Now, and at, at the last time I saw it, my mum actually threw the thing out. It would have been about 40 years old and it was still going strong. There was an embarrassment to have out because it was so old and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And now you get these, these lovely plastic ones and they might last for a couple of seasons. You notice that? They cost you just about nothing, but you're throwing them away all the time. We've sort of gone from these things that you buy and that's it. Family owns it, might even give it to your grandchildren, to the point where nobody wants it even if it's going well. It gets thrown away. And what's replaced it? Not anything with quality, but just a bunch of junk. 
And we were sort of talking as we were driving home, my wife and I, this afternoon, the way that, you know, people used to be able to fit in the smaller houses in the old days, largely because the kids would have a relatively small number of toys, but, you know, they were special and they kept, you know, we're going really well. I sort of now sort of look at, you know, Christmas, you know, and you think, whoa, you know, and the kids open their presents, is fantastic. And I think, how much of that is still going to be around by the time the kids go back to school? Junk. And the kids love it, and we feel sort of guilty if we don't do it, you know. And you're sort of drawn into this culture of just buying stuff, which is junk. Whether it's for yourself or, you know. Um, we're sort of talking about the way it's really hard to buy a watch these days. You know, you go to so many places, how much should you spend on a watch? You know, one with hands, you know. And uh, there's a difficulty, is they just about none of them work sort of more than, you know, a few weeks kind of after you bring it home from the shop. Especially kids' watches. But in a sense, we kind of buy them. And, uh, and right, so you're kind of being sort of brought into this culture of self-interest, the buying junk of being sort of self-indulgent. What's it done for us? Over the last 30 years, some things, and when people sort of say, oh, really, it's really expensive now. When people have studied this seriously, they found that when you look at it, you know, people say, oh, it's really dreadful. You know, cars are really expensive today. Or petrol's going up. Um, clothes are really expensive. You know, you've heard that, probably feel it yourself. If you compare with 1970, compared to um, incomes, cars and running cars is, are in fact considerably cheaper than it was in 1970. Okay. Uh, you can sort of gather that from the number of cars that people are able to own these days. Um, and oddly enough, um, cars are older today, but there are a whole lot of things there. And the other things we sort of say, you know, you sort of people sort of, you know, do comparisons back in time, and, you know, sort of Dr. Small likes to do that a bit, and people say, oh, but, you know, they didn't have air conditioning, and it was really hard, you know, and they didn't have mobile phones, and they couldn't communicate with each other, and all these other things, you know, the Neanderthal sort of back in the dark ages. And you think, oh, wasn't this fantastic? We've got all these, these, these things that have sort of changed, and we're so much better off, right? Things are expensive today. But when we look at the appliances that surround our world, we find that actually we spend less on appliances today than we did a generation ago. They're actually cheaper. I mean, think about it. Right? You know, just think about the price of computers when they first came out. Think about the price of pocket calculators. Think about the price of all sorts of things. Uh, Many, many things, most things, you know, the price, I remember um, a little while ago our, our microwave died and I had this microwave since I was 21 and the thing died and I was sort of really sad, I was actually inclined to fix it and my wife said, no, it's really in a hurry, I've got to cook dinner, go ahead and get another microwave. So he went down the street, put another microwave and sure enough it was kind of probably cheaper to, to buy the thing than to get the thing fixed. Because it's cheap. And so much of the stuff that sort of actually makes our life comfortable is very, very inexpensive. That's really nice. So cars are cheaper, appliances are cheaper. If we look closer, we find that, that food is cheaper than it was a generation ago. Uh, clothing is cheaper. And down there it goes through the list. Most of the things we sort of buy that sort of day day kind of purchases actually become cheaper than a generation ago. Quite extraordinary. Okay? Relative to the value of wages. Yeah? On the other hand, we're working longer in order to, to live it, to, to, to do our, 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 our sort of our living. So how is it that so many things, so many of our expenses are now a lot cheaper than they were a generation ago, yet 
We've got to have two incomes to be able to do it. The things that become dearer. Now, I started off by talking about real estate, and I can't get away from that stuff. Uh, in the United States, it was found that between 1970 and uh, 2005, mortgage prices went up by 75%, I think, in real terms. And so relative to the overall budget, now your, your, your housing costs are a big part of your budget. And the really important thing about them is that you can't switch them off. You know, you can't sort of, like if you're, you know, thinking about buying some new clothes, you can sort of put it off and, you know, right? Can you put off the rent or you can put off the, the, the mortgage payment? No way. It's this big chunk of money out of your pay packet that happens week in, week out, and you can't get away from it. And it has increased massively, relatively, to, uh, to incomes. Uh, that expresses itself in terms of, of rent, mortgages, things like that. A couple of other things have, uh, have gone up, but they're very, very few. In terms of comparisons, about the only two others, okay, maybe three in all, the other two, the first one is childcare. Okay. 1970, childcare didn't even sort of get on the radar as far as a family expense for most people. I mean, sort of no one was home looking after the kids and all that sort of stuff, and that was really lovely. And moreover, um, the people that had studied the matter back in those days considered that sending your kids off to daycare was in fact a great way to psychologically damage them. <laughs> Apparently human nature has changed since then. But now, childcare is a major issue. Um, and you'll find that every time you know, a politician of either stripe sort of get up, they're all the time sort of trying to help the family. And how do they try and help the family? By facilitating daycare. You know, and sort of giving people handout and tax breaks as soon as they can get mum back to work. So, uh, daycare, uh, daycare, childcare has uh, become dearer. That's the second one. The third one is healthcare. Um, healthcare has become phenomenally more expensive, okay, in relative speed. Now, I do a, a, a whole talk just on, on, on the price of health and what that really means. And it's a lovely philosophical excursion you can go into on healthcare. But the, Short answer is that healthcare has become quite expensive. And again, it's something that you can't avoid. One of the problems today is that people are starting to avoid at least the insurance part of it, and to a certain extent we can sort of see that in uh, the political discourse of our time. But let's look at what happens when people do just kind of back away from health insurance, especially when there's two incomes in the family. Yeah? Just think about that. You got yourself in a situation where you've got to have mum and dad both working. Maybe you might have a child these days, maybe 1.7 if you're kind of average. Mum and dad are both working, but you're paying so much for all of the, the things that you've got to pay for, predominantly your mortgage and all the rest of it, um, that you can't afford health insurance. What happens if you get sick? That's a little bit sobering, but it's something that unfortunately is becoming a reality for more and more people, both here and in the United States, where it's actually becoming a major problem. I'll just talk a little bit about the United States for a moment, because at least the statistics there are a little bit more evident. That's kind of a little bit scary. This is one thing to sort of go along and everything's kind of beer and skittles and, and everyone's healthy. But when those two things happen, no health insurance and two incomes, and you lose a, you just lose in fact, you don't even have to have one mum or dad get sick. Because if Junior gets sick, you still lose one income, 
Because all of a sudden, man has to stop work, or dad has to stop work, or something like that, okay, to look after the, the, the sick child. If you don't have the health insurance, it means that all of a sudden this very highly stressed budget is kind of, you know, really sort of just, just pushed past the, the limits. You've lost an income. How do you cope with that? Well, what's happening in the United States, oddly enough, is that there is a family problem which tends not to be spoken about a great deal. We all know how dreadful divorce is as a problem in families today. But are most of us, or many of us, aware of how serious a problem bankruptcy is? You know anyone? Any families have been bankrupt? Maybe one or two of you might. Most of us don't. In the United States at present, and I haven't checked the data in, in Australia, uh, but I'm kind of thinking very seriously about doing the probability of a family uh, experiencing divorce is lower than the probability of a family experiencing bankruptcy. There are more bankruptcies, family bankruptcies in the United States than divorces. Huh? What that means is that, and again, I'm not familiar with the data in Australia, but at least in the States, we tend to follow fairly closely. But if you know somebody, a family, who's had a divorce, you probably know at least one family who's gone through a bankruptcy. The thing is that most people don't hear about it. The mums and dads of those, that couple, often don't hear about it because it's such a humiliation. Sometimes the children in that family won't know about it because mum and dad are too embarrassed to go and tell their kids. They'll simply say something like, well, you know, we're going to sort of move down to Melbourne for, uh, you know, to get a better job. Okay, we're going to sell our house and sort of turns out you're sort of renting a, a little flat somewhere. Okay. But isn't, like, I'm, I'm thinking life in the United States, um, they're, they're totally free market. I mean, they don't have any transport. I don't think, uh, they probably have transfer payments, but I don't think to the extent that we have it here. Yep, that's true. Now, it's a little bit unfair to take it that far. But given that we've got the fundamentals in place... Can you just explain what that means? Oh, transfer payments? Mm. Okay. What we mean by, by transfer payments is, is ways, basically, of sort of levelling out um, the income, the, the, the benefits coming from income across the community. Uh, often that's done by... Uh, taxing one group and then sort of putting it in terms of some form of, of, of public welfare. So like um, uh, Medicare, uh, health support, um, family allowance um, uh, and other uh, benefits. Sure enough, no, the, the state is more severe and that's why I don't want to take this too far. But I want us to think about the way that the double income family, regardless of you know where we are, is stressed in a way which is in disproportionately greater uh, to what the single income family is, okay? Uh, and sort of where that sort of is, is, is really leading. The point about it is that we're sort of being pushed into these kind of, you know, budget structures, if you like, or economic structures on a family basis. Now, we're already in a situation where relatively few families are able to you know, support the family on a single income. So immediately we're sort of pushed into the double income. And when we're pushed into the double income, we're all of a sudden 
kind of pushed into this sort of lifestyle, if you like, that, um, you know, it's fairly precarious. <clears throat> okay. Let's kind of move along because I want to finish up. The house prices, I think, are kind of due for, well, we can sort of see that, uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier that the house prices are unfortunately going down at present. Well, uh, I'm saying that. Eh? It's a little bit scary. Okay. Let's look at sort of some of the factors. Okay, so the, the double income thing is, is a big issue and it's sort of fairly complex. In the past, and sort of certainly over the last 15 years or so, um, there's been a fairly simple kind of mechanism that's been going on. A fair bit, of, I think, of what has brought our prices to what they are at present is a very simple mechanism called deregulation of the financial industry. Okay. In 1970, you needed something like a 40% deposit to go and buy your house. Okay. What that meant was that every dollar that I have, the bank will lend me about a dollar fifty. So that gives me two dollars fifty or what have you. Uh, that, that's like a forty percent deposit. Today, run of the mill, I need about five percent, and there are many loans going out there which are virtually sort of zero deposit. What that means is, I've got a dollar in my pocket. The bank will lend me nineteen dollars. What does that do for my borrowing power? Okay, in nineteen seventy. I had a dollar in my pocket, I could put my hand up at the auction, up to about a dollar fifty, uh, no, it's two dollars fifty. Yeah? And that would sort of define, if you like, the level of the house price. Today, I've got a dollar in my pocket, I can put my hand up at the auction, up to twenty dollars. Yeah? So the price of the house, relatively speaking, goes from the two dollars fifty up to the twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the difference in our house prices hasn't come because houses are anything different, it's not because of the ductile air conditioning, it's not because of the view, it's not because of any this, that or the other as far as the house price goes. It's gone into a price simply because people have been encouraged to borrow more. And that sort of you know, multiplies all the way uh, back down through. Prices have gone up. House prices can just as easily go back down. And we're sort of starting to see that that happen, and the distance to you know how far it goes uh, is something we're we're going to be actually sort of probably seeing in the next few years. The unfortunate thing about it is that if I borrow the money, okay, and the house price goes down, the loan that I have doesn't go down. Hmm? Let's look at the situation. Let's say I currently owe about half of the value of my house. Okay, and the house price goes down. Okay, the bank still is able to take exactly the same amount out. Okay, let's imagine there's some really severe thing. Let's say there's some sort of some dreadful depression, and the house prices go down to, let's say, about a third of what they are right now. I lose my job. Yeah. Can't pay the mortgage. The bank comes along and says, um, "Sorry, but we're going to have to, you know, a very embarrassing situation here." They sell my house. City Morning Herald, Commonwealth, some bank, um, you know, is is really in bad shape because this very irresponsible small character, um, you know, is sort of sitting on this mortgage he shouldn't have had, and they've had to sell his house. And the fourth Commonwealth of the bank um, is, um, I bank was George, um, is um, 
is sort of going badly and sort of the, the bank will probably go along to the government for some sort of a bailout. What's happened there? The bank has lost money. Yeah. How much money have I lost? How much money has the bank lost? Yeah. Um, I've been cleaned out completely. The bank's maybe lost a little bit of its, uh, you know, let's say a third, that's a fairly significant amount. Let's kind of go back a step further behind that. Those good depositors that have lent money to the bank, now for every dollar fifty, in the example I've given, um, only going to get a dollar back and they'll be really cross. Yeah? What can they do with that dollar at that stage? Oddly enough, if the house has gone down to about a third of its value, I've lost my equity, which was half the value of the house. The person who lent the money to the bank has lost a third of their um, income. But oddly enough, they can take that money and buy my house outright 100%. Complicated example, I know. The mechanics of it, though, comes back to a very simple fact, and it's a simple fact that tends to happen in most depressions. And that is that while you hear about the bank closures, and you hear about people losing money, it tends to be the people who have lost a big bit of money coming down to a small, but still fairly large bit of money. But the people who have money usually take it out of the banks, buy hard assets, and end up with a higher percentage of the real wealth in the economy. Okay. Does that sort of make sense? So I probably lost people there. Are there any signs of that in the economy happening right now? Like, are there signs of people moving hard assets, buying these hard assets? To well, you tend <coughs> to find it only indirectly in the way that the, the money sort of tends to change from the markets. Right. So you tend to find a, um, uh, a tendency for it to go from the equities market into property and then into, into cash. Uh, and that sort of goes around. It's really sort of more when you sort of mop up after a major uh, depression, like the 1890s or the 1930s, uh, where you see this sort of change in the distribution of wealth before and after. Uh, and, and basically from the 1920s, uh, like the 1929, 1930 depression, uh, the number of small owners of property who went in tended to be sort of cleaned out and you end up with a smaller number of people being sort of more wealthy at the end of it. Even though they earned less dollars, less the numbers went down, but their physical holdings in terms of percentage of the total wealth in the country actually went up. So it's kind of one of those, those real peculiarities. So I, um, that is a, a, a very peculiar thing, but it sort of fits with the kind of curious complications of the way that we our banking industry has become very, very, com very important. That leads on to the problem of usury that I don't want to really talk about too much because, as again, that's a, a fairly separate topic. How do we get around these various problems? It's really what I want to sort of finish on. There are a few approaches to it. I've kind of given you a lot of ideas tonight. Um, I think there's something which I'll call a paradox of simplicity. I've been trying to actually put a number of paradoxes to you tonight. The paradox of simplicity is that if everyone in the community was to do things like reject bank financing, like the example of the war-torn country that I mentioned a while back. You don't need a war to actually do it, except that you probably do to actually get it happen in practice. If we were simply you know, stand back and say, no, I'm not going to borrow up to the hill from the bank you'd probably find that life would actually be a lot simpler. 
prices would be a lot more stable uh, and people have more money in their pockets for, um, for doing other things. So rejecting bank finance uh, would, uh, or at least keeping it modest, uh, would, would actually make our enjoyment of life better by keeping prices modest. Likewise, if we were to choose local products, Chesterton was very big on this. It's very hard. There's nothing to stop us from not buying Chinese shoes and Chinese hand and Chinese that and the other. I don't know if it's possible to buy non-Chinese electronic goods these days, uh, but, you know, notionally it's kind of possible. Okay. Uh, and a number of other things. On the other hand, if, if people running businesses uh, work with the attitude of um, earning enough to have a modest living for their family rather than trying to maximise their profits. Again, I sort of mentioned I'm, I'm back in the business world and I've had to sit through business meetings recently where we're sort of talking about how the business is going to grow and we're going to do this, that and the other and, you know, I've got a rah, rah and all that sort of stuff. But in a sense, it's sort of, it's still a little bit sad because in a sense, we're kind of talking about making more money than we really need. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of drawn into it, most of us are. But if we reject those things, rejecting bank finance, rejecting attitudes in, in business where we're really sort of out to maximise our profits rather than simply earn enough um, and making the choice uh, towards you know, the local products, you know, buy the Dick Smith's kind of peanut butter and that sort of thing. How many people do? Right? Very easy, fantastic, we do too. Uh, but it's very hard. And you're almost quite. I remember there was an email around, some of you guys might have got, got it. You know, they, they suggested if we want to bring the uh, price of fuel down, get everybody simply you know, to go for a couple of months and not buy fuel at Mobile or Shell or BPay or something. And if you were to do that, uh, if Mobile wanted to be in business, because mm-hmm. huh? uh, they want to do it. Huh? So there's that paradox of simplicity. But Okay, all of those things, uh, would, would, uh, and we can sort of look at the ways that it would actually make our economy um, return a better standard of living to the ordinary people, even though we appear to be sort of putting a little bit of self-restraint on ourselves. And this is where this notion of penance that I want to sort of get around to kind of comes in. That by making those choices, um, not to be self-interested, that's a choice for a kind of penance. It means making life a little bit harder for ourselves. Many things would be a lot better. Um, the difficulty with that as an approach is that it really, really, really requires the, the majority of the community to do it in order to be effective. You can't have two or three people not going along with the mobile service station expecting to, you know, sort of cripple the, uh, the oil industry. Uh, it simply doesn't work. And there are lots of people who do it, and that's sort of a practical difficulty. Where does it leave us, though? It means that the man wants to support his family on his income, okay? maybe have more than two kids. What does that mean? It means that you have to live in such a way as to make a voluntary choice to live a simpler and a less comfortable life than maybe some sort of other people you know. And we just sort of go through school and sort of you know, leave school and all that sort of stuff. Um, many people that you know and you're close to that might sort of have the same life opportunities that you do if they choose to simply follow the self-interested kind of line, they're going to be more comfortable. They're going to have the two four-wheel drives and the driveway and all that sort of stuff. How much to, is enough, though? What's that? How much is enough? 
Well, yeah, but, I mean, this is very hard when you're looking at a community where everyone sort of sets the standard as a, as a common, right? And to a certain extent, today, to actually make those decisions mean that you have to voluntarily choose to live at a standard of living or in some other way uh, which is not as comfortable as the person next door. I think that there are a number of other places where you find that. Um, the, the example of the family that sort of chooses uh, to have more than two children or to live on a single income. Um, I don't know how you do it with real estate. Because unfortunately, real estate is really sort of set by the person with the most dollars in their pocket. Okay? Which means the double income family is always going to blitz the single income family. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really sort of choice dependence. I think it's very hard to step away from the contraceptive mentality because of the economic imperative that we've got. And so, I mean, again, this notion of living what you want to live in terms of values means that you have to make a choice to live tougher than the alternative. And that's kind of quite sobering. Especially when many of these things are coming simply as a result of the free choices of the community as a whole. And they're coming largely through the legal and sort of economic kind of mainstream. Right? Uh, by legal, I mean that uh, you know the banks do have the right to go and foreclose on you. They do have the right to change the interest rates whenever they feel. It's sort of like legal rights um, that are really being used as um, you know sort of tools of um, sort of making life difficult. It's a form of, of, uh, coercion. of tyranny. What's that? Coercion. Coercion in a sense. It's sort of, it's, it's bizarre. I, I personally I sort of think it's, it's sort of a, um, uh, it's being done by people that, that, that like a, a very godless kind of lifestyle and they're sort of promoting that for everybody else, but sort of, you know, enslaving them at the same time they're doing it. Okay. Another problem, and I'll just finish on this. I've mentioned the insecurity, uh, I've mentioned the difficulty for the family uh, sort of making that choice. But there's an indirect uh, effect too, which I found kind of interesting when I sort of started to look at it. When you have people that want to make a choice to live according to their values, in an economy which is really promoting the other, okay, it means that not only are you stress personally, but it does mean that there are a number of other things that are made more difficult. And I'll just run through a few of them rather quickly. Okay? First of all, there's, there's very little left for saving, so you don't have that sort of long-term security. Um, I've just sort of said, what hope for a hope chest? You know, um, sort of kids growing up, uh, you know, where are your children going to, to uh, uh, how are they going to be preparing for the future, especially as real estate becomes impossible. But then let's look further afield. It's not just about the family, but it's also about supporting the community. Let's think about almsgiving. If the people that are inclined to support the community, okay, in other words, those people that aren't self-interested, are going to be putting money on the plate or to the sentence of the poor or to, um, you know, you name the charity. If they're the people that are stressed in the community, uh, are financially stressed, then it means that these good works, these corporate good works of the community, some of the Paul Society, you know, we'll just use that as an example, but also maybe, you know, the local convent or, or, or monks or what have you that might really sort of need our generosity, they're going to be sort of led and made more difficult too. And so to live the life of a religious means that you're probably going to be living a life 
which is considerably tougher than it has been for a long, long time. Because the faith community can't, which suddenly doesn't have the economic kind of reserves to be able to support it. So again, it means to live in this economy means to make these choices, to live tough, like a tougher life, but also the people that really want to devote themselves to God. Uh, I don't know if the prognosis is terribly good. I hope it's quite better than I'm sort of pointing the, um, uh, you know, sort of making out. There are even little things, you know, you, um, the, the difficulty of, uh, of just sort of even, you know, getting clothes that, um, you know, are modest or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in a world where you see, if mum and dad are both working, what chance do you have to make your own clothes if you don't like what's on the rack? Uh, and when the shops are uh, working in terms of really sort of high throughput and all the rest of it, uh, they're only sort of you know giving you what's this year's fashions and and, and whatnot. Okay, where does that leave you as far as modesty and clothes again? I mean, we have difficulty at home sort of trying to find. I was looking for pajamas for, for one of my boys, and um, <laughs> brought home this, this, these pajamas and they had bugs all over them. And the little boys, oh, I couldn't go to sleep in there. They're sort of scary. And so my wife sort of took them back, and she had the choice between the ones with daggers and dripping blood, or the ones with skulls. And, uh, yeah. So I don't know, I don't know what you're going to do with you know, pajamas. But you see, the difficulty is that you don't have that kind of resource anymore. And uh, I think that's kind of also sort of tending to, to push people into a culture which maybe they otherwise wouldn't have. Okay, I'll leave it there. Um, and I've got a bit out of time, so I'm sorry about that. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Garrick Small. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.